I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quas. This is episode 416 for October 25th, 2012. Today's guest is trombonist and vocalist Natalie Cressman, and this is the penultimate episode of the Jazz Session. There is one show left after this one. My thanks to the Respect Sextet who have provided the theme music to this show for all 416, soon to be 417 episodes. You'll find them online at respectsextet.com. And even though the jazz session is ending, the Respect Sextet certainly is not. So go check out their recordings and buy them. In fact, they have a new Christmas album on the way called Respect in Yule. Uh, you know, they're just fantastic. I can't say enough about the Respect Sextet. They're really, really brilliant musicians, and you should be buying all their records. So please do that. Thank you also to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and to Rob Grendel for the Jazz or Bust logo. Please, if you would, follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can also check out jasoncrane.org, which is my poetry and diary site, if you want to keep up with what I'm doing. I am going to be launching a new podcast. There'll be information about that there. And I will put something in the iTunes feed also for this show, so uh, you'll get a little announcement about the new show. What else can I tell you? I am in Auburn, Alabama, as you know. Uh, I'm really glad that I decided to stay here. I think I think it's going to be a good place for me. I think I'll be able to build some kind of normal life here, which I don't know about normal, but stable, I think, is the word I'm looking for, which I'm really excited about. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here meeting lots of cool people, and it just seems like a, like a really great place, a place that I can be, be happy, which, which makes me happy. <laughs> uh, this is... Although it's the next to the last episode of my show, the interview that you're about to hear is actually the final one I conducted for the jazz session. I did it when I was back in New York before I came back down south. And I'm really glad this was my last interview because it was great. Uh, Natalie Cressman, who is quite young, is, uh, as you'll hear in this interview, just really possessed of a of a great kind of self-concept um, which is not fueled by arrogance, but just by having some understanding of where at this moment she fits in the world, uh, which is certainly something I did not have at the age that she currently is. <laughs> I think you could probably be argued I don't actually have it now. Uh, but in any case, I was just really, really impressed while I was talking to her and uh, really happy that this is the way, at least interview-wise, the jazz session ended. Next week, the next show, which is coming up on Monday, the 29th, is an interview I recorded with Jeffrey Keezer and Donnie McCaslin. <laughs> I stumble on their names like that or pause on their names because when I saved the interview, I saved it as McKeeslin, just as a joke to myself. And so now sometimes when I read their names together, I can't remember which first name goes with which last name for a second. But anyway, that was at the Detroit Jazz Festival. So that's the final show, number 417, coming up on Monday, the 29th. 
Uh, Natalie Cressman, I actually got to see the CD or one of the CD release parties for her record unfolding with her band Secret Garden at uh, – where were we? At the Jazz Gallery because uh, my friend Nikki Schreira, who's also been on this show, uh, recommended that we go check it out. Uh, I didn't know anything about Natalie. I'm really glad I went. And uh, I think you'll be really glad, too, when you hear this interview and, and get to hear the music. Uh, she's just a cool person. As we speak, actually, she's on the road with Trey Anastasio. We'll talk about that also. Uh, those of you who don't know Trey may have heard of the band Fish, and that was Trey's band. Okay. I feel like I'm meandering a little bit. It's strange. I mean, this is it. I've got one more of these intros to do, and then that's all. The jazz session is over. It's very strange. Even uh, – I'm just going to talk for another second here – even the folder on my laptop w- that I keep all the interviews in that need to be produced, it only has you know two folders left inside it. Uh, the one for this interview that I'm doing right now and, and the one for the McKeeslin interview. And usually it's full of stuff. There's tons of stuff to be done in there. And there's just nothing. It's, it's coming to an end. It really is ending. There has definitely been times when I just thought, well, the jazz session will go on for like 20 or 30 years. It'll just be a thing I do forever. Uh, so I'm excited to launch another show. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm feeling reflective, I guess, which is good because I bike a lot at night. Okay. So here's music from Natalie Cressman and then uh, my interview with her. guest is Natalie Cressman. She's got a new album with her band Secret Garden called Unfolding. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so it seems like some kind of career in music was almost inevitable for you, given your your family background. And maybe that's a place to start, just talking about how you developed your passion for, for playing this led us to where we are now. Uh, yeah. Well, my parents are both musicians, so it definitely was all around me. And I was constantly tagging along to their gigs. And I'd you know go to weddings and take a nap in the bass player's case <laughs> backstage, you know, it just from the very beginning, um, 
I was definitely involved in music, but it was definitely in a more um, hobbyistic fashion for a while. And I, you know, grew up singing and playing some piano. And then I started the trombone when I was about nine or 10. But I was also really into uh, theater and ballet dancing, which is also two very time consuming art forms. So it actually was um, maybe halfway through high school that I decided I really wanted to do music seriously. So um, as much as I, it was all around me and I loved it, it, it was always just whatever, whatever I felt like doing, I did it, which I think is good because sometimes, uh, having musician parents, they have high expectations that, you know, they set you up right away with an instrument and, you know, try to get you to practice and cause they know what, you know, what you need to do to be great at the art form. But my parents just kind of let me kind of find my own way to it. And I think that was probably better because it was always just self-motivated, um, study and listening and everything. Did you realize at some point in high school that you were going to have to make a conscious decision that I can't have both a career as a dancer, a career as an actor and a career as a musician? Well, yeah, I was really into ballet, but that uh, it's a very strict and intense art form. And and I got injured during a school play and had to stop dancing for like two months. And I had a boot on my leg for junior prom. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It just kind of brought everything (laughs) up into question. And, and I um, joined a band with some of the, my friends in high school and started playing, you know, some rock and started singing, um, some more popular styles of music and playing and writing. And I just realized like, wow, I can do this my whole life. Like, it's not like a dance career where you're done when you're 35 and then you have to figure out something else to do. And it's like, wow, I can, you know, they're 80-year-old musicians that are, you know, still growing and improving and, and reaching new heights. So I just was like, I should just do this, and I can always dance on the side or um, enjoy that as a spectator, but I really want to do music. And so once you decided that that was the course you wanted to pursue, how, what did that change for you? What did you have to start doing, or what did you decide mm-hmm. to do? Well, I um, started taking uh, lessons with a saxophone teacher, actually, just to get my bebop playing and my straight ahead jazz kind of more finely tuned because lessons on trombone on trombone yes taught by a saxophonist who was you know super you know super hard on me to push me to get better i think that was a big thing and it was again i told you know i told my parents i want to have lessons i drove myself there i made it happen it wasn't it wasn't you know because it wasn't ever pushed on me um and you know started playing with this band started writing music it just you know started focusing my time outside of and I was at an art school in the band department. So I was playing like three hours a day all throughout high school in class. But it started being, you know, rehearsals and practicing outside of school and transcribing. And um, it just, you know, the the extra hours that I had from, you know, the dance class. I, I used to go to class. Um, I'd, I'd work in the band department from like one to four every day. And then I'd rush over to ballet and I'd be there till seven. And then I'd go home and do my homework. It was just like not, it wasn't, it wasn't a schedule that was, you know, I could maintain and, and, and practice and, and get where I needed to be. And then I started doing these um, summer programs and honor bands like the Monterey Jazz Festival's Next Generation Ensemble. We went, you know, we went to Europe and played at the festival and started meeting other kids that were as excited, if not even like further along than I was because, you know, a lot of a lot of the people in my band that I've met through those things, they always had music as their main thing from maybe the age of ten or something. Right. So it was it was really cool to meet people that just kind of had their their stuff figured out, and I felt like I was kind of playing catch up in the, that last year and a half of high school, you know, figuring out oh, so this is how it works, and yeah, and then you know go, coming to New York and going to music school was you know the next step. 
you um how did you know where you wanted to get to how were you setting goals for yourself or you know kind of figuring out okay well this is the path i should be going down yeah well it's hard i mean music is so broad and people look at it so many different ways but for me i I was looking at i've always kind of had this attitude of not trying to be limited by my instrument and not trying to always just keep it safe and play like a trombonist so i would you know get some exercises from a saxophone player playing friend of mine or transcribe, um, you know, a McCoy Tyner solo, you know, just sure. stuff to, to kind of shake things up. And, and I think through it, I kind of have a different way of playing the trombone than, you know, I, you know, I love JJ Johnson and I love Rank Rosalino, but I'm never going to be them. So it was taking all these different influences, all these things that I was really excited about listening to and trying to synthesize it into something that was, you know, kind of more my thing. <laughs> sure. How does being a singer impact being a trombonist and vice versa? Well, I think it definitely helps. I think that my trombone playing is definitely maybe a little more lyrical and melodic than like some other styles of trombone playing can be and and vice versa. I think my singing, sometimes I'm kind of jumping angularly, more like a horn player. And I think that it definitely comes into it because I don't think that I... In, I don't think I cognitively have that much of a difference in it. You know, I mean, obviously the physics of playing the trombone is different than singing, but I think when I'm improvising or writing, it's pretty like a seamless, you know, they're kind of one thing. Sure. Yeah, speaking of that angularity, I remember seeing you at the Jazz Gallery, and it's also in evidence on this record, and uh, being really impressed that you tackled Joni Mitchell's version uh, of Goodbye Pork by Hat. Which, I mean, is amazing, and I mean, I've been listening to that version for twenty-something years now, mm-hmm. and it's remarkably difficult to sing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and Joni's kind of famous for that. You know, she sings like a horn player. I mean, very, very angular, very intervallic, and so it seems like that fits right in with what you were talking about. Yeah, 
Totally, and she's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I noticed there's a Joni Mitchell record right, right here. Yeah. Stack, right? <laughs> I just got four from the Housing Works um, at 96th Street. But yeah, um, so I listened to that Mingus album when I was a little bit younger, like 14 or 15, and just was blown away by that. And her version of Dry Cleaner from Des Moines, it's just this blues where she's just, yeah. you know, has this vocalize that's just, it, she makes it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I want to do that. And I was start, I was listening to that and um, Lambert Hendrickson Ross I got really into in high school and did some Annie Ross solos. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually really hard. Like, um, not so much like hearing it and being able to do it, but being able to do it seamlessly. Because, you know, I never really, I mean, my, my mom's a vocal technician. And so I, you know, I'm aware of vocal technique but coming from a horn player's perspective I didn't like shed all those kind of jumps and leaps and scales like you would sure. do on a trombone so it was just like oh wow and I think it was like kind of like these little etudes figuring out how to navigate my own voice and it, it was cool I, I got really into it <laughs> yeah can you talk about uh just to stick on Joni for a second what about her songwriting appeals to you well I think her lyrics are just like breathtakingly beautiful and just they paint a picture without any cliches and without like it's so she has this like way of being so specific and detailed with these images but yet it feels universal because sometimes when I see singer songwriters play it's like they're literally pouring their heart out and she does that too but I think she does it in a way that's almost a little more reserved and a little more like elegant um, and I really like that about her lyrics and then also her harmony is so unique she just I don't know anybody that, I mean, she did all these different detunings and all these um, these open strumming and the, just the angularity, she just kind of always, there were always surprises to her music and I think that sometimes with like pop singer songwriting, it gets very predictable and I think her, yeah, it's just everything from her melodies to the, the chords that she writes to the form of the tunes, it's like I'm always being surprised and kind of taken away by, you know, the the contrasts and the the depth of what she's writing. Do you dissect music like that in the same way that you might, uh, you know, a, a jazz classic that you're going to transcribe? Um, I mean, not so much. I think for her, it's like I've been listening to so many albums over the years that, you know, I see it that way. But I tend to listen to music kind of more emotionally first. And, and I think that's good. I think that's, you know, if you get too far away from what your audience is feeling or what they're experiencing then it can almost be bad even though it's it's good to get you know to really analyze what you like and what you don't like in technical terms i think that sometimes if you get too far into that then you're kind of losing the perspective of being just an audience just a listener and so sometimes i i try not to be so analytical I, although it's you know they both are important as a performer when you're serving the audience from the from the stage how do you keep that same thing in mind how do you keep the the needs of the audience for an emotional connection in mind right well i i try my writing i try not to get i mean i think there is a lot of complexity in the tunes on the album and the tunes i've been writing recently but i try not to let that kind of be too overwhelming i always try to find some way of there being a like a through line, like with either being like a groove or a pedal note or just the melody being really catchy, just something for them to hang on to so that there can be all this chaos and all this stuff around that's, you know, very complicated, but there's just something to latch on to. And I, um, and I try to, I try to 
you know, build a set that's everything's a little different. So it doesn't get, you know, the songs don't all sound the same and then um, people lose interest. But it's, you know, it's something that I'm getting better at doing the more that we perform. And it's a pretty new band. So each time I play, I feel like I'm getting a better grasp of what needs to happen. And, um, and also just depending on the venue, like I'm playing tomorrow night at the paper box, um, in Williamsburg and the other guys on the bill are like the space funk big band and (laughs) an Afro beat band. And so it's like, we're going to play a very different set than we would at the jazz gallery. Sure. And I think that's good. And it's also a nice challenge to like, can be playing the same songs but just try to reinvent them and make them different and bring out a different um aspect of them in terms of the emotional connection is it is it an advantage that you sing do you think i think so and i I think it's hard to do it with instrumental music although um it, it can be done but it's just something about human nature that people respond to the to voice and words and so i try to I try to write words that are interesting. <laughs> I try really hard. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to go like, Oh, he broke up with me and blah, blah, blah. You know, and like the, those kind of songs. Well, I just really don't like them. So <laughs> I think, you know, I just, I try to say what I'm saying. And I guess, you know, there are a lot of universal themes in songwriting, but I try to say them different in different ways or, um, kind of make it a little more subtle. Cause I think then people are like, Ooh, I wonder what she means. And then it can mean different things to different people. And sure. that's the really cool thing is when I write a song about my grandmother and someone thinks it's a love song and someone else, you know, thinks it's something else. And I just think that's really cool. Do dance and theater express themselves in your music, that your background in those two disciplines? Mm, I Well, I think dance, I've heard from other people that they think that my music is really lyrical and that there's something about it that that might be like a little, like there might be a visual aspect in it. And I don't consciously do that. I don't know, sure. if, I don't know <laughs> if that's true. I'm just saying what people have told me. Um, but I think it's important. I mean, we don't, I'm not necessarily writing dance music, but if it has no groove and no, no flow or sway to it, then I feel like there's something missing. So I, I, maybe it's just me trying to come up with some kind of rhythmic vitality that's, that's in there, but it might not be overtly 
dance with theatrical. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's talk about uh, the new record unfolding and maybe start with the band who are uh, very, very talented. Yeah. And some of my best friends. Um, so we have Ivan Rosenberg on trumpet and uh, Chad Lefkowitz Brown played tenor sax on everything but the last track. And my godfather and just mentor, mu- musical mentor, Peter Affelbaum played on the, the ninth song. Um, that kind. And then the rhythm section was Jake Goldbass on drums, Pascal LaBeouf on piano, and Ruben Samama on bass. And are these all folks from the various kind of bands that you've played in both out west and here? Yeah, for the most part. Um, I met the horn players in high school doing those kind of uh, big bands that sure. uh, the Next Gen and then the Grammy band in LA. And then Pascal um, is from Santa Cruz, so I knew of him, but he's a little bit older than me. So it was, and then once I got to New York, he kind of gave me a lot of really good advice, and we started playing together. And Jake Goldbass is one of my own old roommates um, from when I first came to college, and and Ruben came into the project pretty late on in the game. We had another bass player who ended up not being able to do the session like a couple weeks before, and I was actually oh, no. I was actually on tour. And came back the week before our recording session and we had this, oh God, we need to get a new bass player. <laughs> and, um, he was, he had graduated from the master's program at Manhattan School of Music before I even got here, but, um, Ivan knew him through playing in his singer songwriting group and he's an amazing bass player. And we had one rehearsal with him the, the day before the session and he just, I mean, you can hear it on the album. He just really took charge. Like in in the best way possible, and it was really great. You know, I, I'm actually it's probably like was all for the best because it just <laughs> brought out a, a totally new side to to the music. You know, it was really cool. What do you need in a rhythm section for your music? Well, I think that with it's really important to me to have kind of some rhythmic variety. Like my music doesn't have necessarily that much straight ahead playing in it at all. I think it's good to understand that because it's obviously improvised music. There's you know. You know, there's a wide range of styles that are improvisatory. (laughs) And, um, but I think it was really important for me coming from the Bay Area and playing a lot of Latin jazz and Brazilian music and having those styles in my writing a little bit. And Jake really understood that as a drummer. And him, I mean, all three of them actually do projects as, you know, with singer songwriters. Uh, Ruben's a producer and singer songwriter and i think they have a really good grasp on how to shape tunes like you can write out a bunch of crap and it's it still can not really do this the song justice sure. and it's kind of more about giving them the framework and getting it together and f- making conscious choices on what this section is going to be and what that section is going to be and i think um you know pascal also has has a group where he writes and he does some pop projects and some some producing so just having them understand that side of it so well made it easy to like bring in the tunes, but not like micromanage every aspect and let them come up as a rhythm section with, with ways to shape and, and change um, and build the song, you know? Yeah. I'll just make my own editorial comment that I think within a few years, Jake Goldbass will be one of the drummers that everybody knows. I mean, I yeah. Think he's, yeah. He's no, he's definitely on that. Path. Amazing. Amazing mm-hmm. player. Uh, how did you decide that it was actually time to make a record? Well, I just got really into composing when I first moved here. And I also, you know, have been doing all this work in like the rock scene as a sideman 
with uh, Trey Anastasio. And who people will know from Fish. Yes, from the yeah. band Fish. And, um, you know, I have met so many people and, and kind of gained some fans out of that and that I didn't expect I would. Um, and I just really wanted a chance to show people what me is because I think I wear a lot of hats as a musician, as a sideman. And when, you know, when I play in that band, I get, you know, I do get to solo, but, you know, I think I just really wanted to put a finger on what my identity is when it's, you know, when I'm calling the shots and when I'm right. writing the music. And I think it was really, I just felt like it was really important for me to do that. And I had all this music already written. So it was just kind of like, well, you know, maybe this is time to put something out. And, and I didn't want to obsess over it too much because I feel like no matter, you know, where you are in your career, you know, the, the project you're doing is a snapshot of a place you are in, at that time. And even when we f finally put it out, I felt like I was in a different place musically and that's okay, you know, but I, I, you know, I, I did my best with it and I did a lot of work on it myself, you know, doing the producing and collaborating with the art, um, art director and everything. I was really like kind of involved in most of the stages of it, but, um, but I wasn't trying to make it the perfect album because I knew that that would kind of not be feasible. And we kind of set up the recording to be very live. Like we were all in one room playing together and I really just wanted that energy you know, not to like try to um, commercialize it and have like the drummer lay down something and then right. the bass lay down something and then we'll, oh, we'll just auto-tune everything in post. You know, it was just like we were just trying to do it live and, and show how we really play. So I think it's kind of comes off that way too. I started doing what I do when I was the same age you are, and so I hated it when people mentioned how old I was. But I do want to mention that you're like 20 or 21 or 22, something like yeah, that, Yeah, I just right? turned 21. 21. So the the only reason I mention that is because uh, you seem to have a very kind of grounded view of where you're at and where you're headed. Do, do you, why, why is that? Do you have any idea? <laughs> That's a hard question. Um, well, I think... Not to bring it back to my parents again, but I think it definitely, it helps that they're very eclectic in that my dad is a trombonist and a sound engineer and my mom is a voice teacher and, and they all, and also within that, they play a range of styles. And I think I always thought about music as like, it doesn't matter what I end up doing as long as it's good music and as long as I feel like I'm being challenged. And I just think that I've been lucky enough to have those opportunities um, 
so far and I am young and it's and like I don't take it for granted that I've been able to tour with you know a couple different groups and that I you know I have had the time to write and I think you know I'm just not I'm trying not to stress about the big picture too much and just know that whatever gig I'm doing and whatever project I'm on I'm just trying to do it justice and do the best I can and um, I think that's better because I think I would I would drive myself crazy trying to like be a superstar or something that's not I mean it would, it would be awesome if lots of people ended up listening to my music and right. and that we you know we got to tour and play big venues but that's really not the point for me I and I and I, I think that I really am just like the smallest little improvements that we make musically or, or in terms of how many people show up those are just like the bonus but it's just always going to be a good experience you know because I love playing with these guys and I love playing and writing so it's you know it's kind of nice I feel like there's no way for me to fail unless I just stop trying hard or something <laughs> sure will you talk about how you write and how long it took to put together the music for this mm -hmm. record um it's funny it, it's kind of different every time I sit down but in the case of a lot of the songs on the album they kind of they didn't write themselves but they kind of came pouring out pretty quickly especially the the vocal ones which was interesting because i hadn't done a lot of vocal com like composing for voice um and now i've been getting more and more into it and i feel really comfortable about doing it but it was just really weird how i just sat down to write the song and then i was like oh this could sound really good sung and then it was like it took me like 20 minutes to write the lyrics and it was just really really strange and really cool that that was the case. And then other tunes, you know, I'd sit on them for like a couple of weeks and like really try to figure out. Because um, sometimes, you know, you get stuck in different sections. Like you have a really great intro and a really great like first half of the tune. You're like, where does this go? And sometimes it's good to like, like step away from it for a couple of days and come back. Um, but I, I do write on piano and I tend to start with um, the melody and then match the harmony to the melody um because like i kind of compose the melodies with an idea of what what i want it to sound like like what the bed underneath it should be and um so it yeah it, it just sometimes it's it's different um lately i've been writing lyrics first and setting the music to lyrics but the two um compositions that i with with voice on the album are the, the opposite way. I wrote like the whole tune and I was like, oh, let's make it a vocal tune and let's add lyrics. So it's just, you know, it's, it, it, I like that it's not a set way because I think then if it was set, then I'd be coming up with tunes that sound similar all the time. Can you tell me about the name of the band, how you came up with Secret Garden? Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, it took me a really long time to figure out a name for a band. I just, I was so sick of hearing like so-and-so quartet and, you know, so-and-so ensemble. And I just wanted something that was like unique and, 
and again but not like just something that like was just put in there just to have a name like I just wanted it to make sense and to me the story of Secret Garden um which is you know an old classic Francis Hodge Burnett um novel and this girl who um was just really kind of well she had a really bad childhood but (laughs) she was just like really taciturn and and she you know found this garden that was locked away and she just kind of brought it back to life and through it changed who she was and I just wanted that um that sense of like um growth and and being able to like bring joy to people and figuring out my own identity kind of like she did in, in in this work on the garden so I just think just to bring a sense of positivity and just I, you know, I really care about, you know, having an impact on whoever I'm playing for. And, you know, so that's kind of how it came about. I think it fits. It's, you know, and it's, it, you know, it's, like I said, it's just, it felt good to have something that wasn't just like, you know, Natalie Cressman quintet or sextet or whatever. Sure. How did you end up touring with Trey Anastasia? Um, well, my dad did a tour with him in 2005 and um, they, so Trey was getting the band back together again in like fall of 2009 and um he was looking for someone who could sing and play and they looked and they couldn't find anybody and so then they called my dad um and my dad also plays with carlos santana and he was going to be on tour during the tour that trey wanted him to be on and my dad recommended me and they thought it was pretty funny at first (laughs) (laughs) my daughter can play she's 18 like you know like it was just but um the trumpet player in the band um joined Jen Hartswick, she joined when she was about 19. So I think was Trey, was, Trey wasn't <laughs> ageist at all about sure. it. And the way he, he called me, and I remember I was just in my dorm room, and I got this call, and, you know, this guy from Fish is calling and asking about this tour, and I got really excited. But I didn't – I wasn't, like, a huge Fish fan, so it didn't really phase me the way it might somebody who's, sure. like, in that scene. But um, I had to send them some stuff, and then he had me, like, go sit in with a band that Jen was playing in. And so, like, Jen was kind of the one who, like, gave the go-ahead, which was really cool. And since then, she's kind of been my my mentor in that scene because, you know, she was exactly where I am now, you know, 10 years ago. And so what's the repertoire in that band? It's a lot of – it's very broad. Like, there's some original music. I mean, it's mostly original music, but it's a mix of, like, these kind of more, like, funky jams and then some real deep songwriting. And the horn lines are just – very everything is very eclectic which is i think is why i really like playing in it because it totally fits what i like to do but um nicholas payton wrote some of the horn lines peter applebaum wrote some of the horn lines um they're these beautiful almost classical um like three-part horn writing that don hart did it's like just like very lyrical and and just like so you know within a set there's just like a huge range of what what we play and then this new album we put out um peter cadis who's kind of known for his producing with uh, The National, and it's kind of more of an indie thing, so it's lots of kind of more of an indie and, like, messing with sounds and tweaking the horn, even, like, you know, even my live horn sound, it's, you know, was different on the album. And so now we're playing keyboards in it, too, and, like, synths and singing <laughs> and playing all at the same time. So, yeah, it's it's really fun, and it's a challenge. I mean, the, the music's really hard, and he, like, he... Trey is so great because he doesn't really, um, he doesn't pay attention to the fact that we're horn players. So he'll be like, you can play the fiddle solo in Devil Went Down to Georgia. That would be so cool. Let's do it. And then we 
we have to do it and we have to learn it. Right. And that's kind of the way it goes. But it's, you know, it's really creative and really spontaneous. And, um, and I don't think that, you know, my, my peers and my teachers at MSM even understand how challenging it actually is. Sure. Because it's like some pretty crazy music to, to play. And how often are you on the road with that band? Right now we've been doing like maybe two weeks every year. Um, because obviously he's busy with fish and he has a family, you know, and he likes to be home. So, and he has a Broadway show that's coming out, I think, soon oh, wow. too. So, yeah. So I think maybe in the next couple of years it'll start to be, um, more frequent, but I kind of like it. It kind of works out for me because now I can still be in school. Sure. I've done like this tour every, every year for the four years I've been here at MSM and, and it's been really nice. I haven't had to take a semester off and I'm going to graduate on time. So it kind of all just worked out pretty magically. <laughs> Will you talk about Manhattan School and why you decided to come here? Well, I really wanted to be in New York. Um, I know that that seems like a funny reason to choose for a school, but I just really, um, I grew up coming here and visiting, and I just really, something spoke to me about the city. And I auditioned to a bunch of different schools here, um, and I think what I liked about Manhattan was that it was small enough so that, you know, all the teachers know your name, the you know, the dean of the department knows your name, and... Um, and you can know all the students within the first couple weeks of school, which was really nice. Um, but, uh, also it's not quite so, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say limited, but, uh, Juilliard has like a very strong focus on very straight ahead jazz. And I think MSM too, you know, we focus on bebop in the undergrad and some like chromaticism later on in the master's department, but. I think that there's a little bit more room to breathe in terms of the music we can write and bring in and how we can play. It's not, I feel like a lot of schools treat jazz as like a classical repertoire now. And it's as much as I love those standards and I have spend, spent countless hours learning them, you know, even in this degree, I think that if that's the only um, impression you have of the music, then that doesn't kind of leave us very well equipped for like the real world. Um, and so I just 
liked that there were people at Manhattan that were, yeah, studying studying bebop and the American songbook, but writing all this really great modern music. And um, there are just lots of lots of examples, like a precedent for people touring um, while in school. And I mean, not that it's very easy to do that. You do have to like make a strong case for yourself and do sure. all the work. But I think that it just felt like the right fit. And it was also just like meeting with the teachers that I ended up studying with and walking through the halls before I even went there just felt like a good fit. And so what's your experience of being in New York been like now that you're here outside of school? Yeah, well, I really like it. It's definitely, I think it it's not as overwhelming as it could be because I did grow up in a city. And so I'm not, I'm, I'm used to that kind of hustle and bustle, but the pace is, is just, you know, it's, I just, I'm always out late playing music and I always have to get up early to <laughs> go to class and it's just, you know, um, I'll, I'll be able to sleep when I'm dead, but <laughs> I'm getting a lot of sleep these days. Um, but that's kind of the way it works is all the jam sessions start at like one right. <laughs> on a weeknight. And it's that, that's been something to adjust, um, to because, you know, I used to get up early and go to dance class every morning and sure. that just can't really happen here if I want to go out and play. And, um, but I love it. I really do. And I like that there are so many kinds of artists, not just musicians who have made this their home. And I just, yeah, I just really like that sense of just creative people. I mean, and, you know, and also just some great business people <laughs> that are, you know, that live in the city and have like appreciate that. But it's also hard because I feel like, um, the community in San Francisco, there's such a great support for live music. And here people are kind of jaded because there's so much of it. So it's, you know, whereas, you know, at home, just, you know, having grown up in San Francisco, I can go play a gig and people will have heard of me, even though I, I didn't do that much gigging when I was younger. Then I come here and it's like, Natalie, who? You know, right. <laughs> and it just takes time for people to, you know, get to know you. And I mean, it's obviously it's not going to happen overnight. But um, but I think that that was difficult because um, the, the scene in San Francisco is a lot smaller. So it's just a lot easier to get hired and to have people want to come hear you. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you finishing your undergrad degree this year? Yeah. And I'll then be. what? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was thinking about going to school um, for my master's if I didn't have any touring engagements, but I really want to put out a second album with Secret Garden and tour next year. So I probably won't, at least not for a little bit. Um, and... Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I thought that, you know, my parents both didn't finish their degrees because they were gigging musicians. And I kind of feel like I'm at the same place, except that they'd probably like me to get an education because <laughs> they didn't, um, which is just funny. But, but um, yeah, so I'm still figuring it out. But I definitely think that I want to tour and and have that freedom to, like, you know, freelance and do that because um, it's what I really like to do. And you know, e even if um, the school is understanding, it still is a, a limit on how much you can really do. Sure. What does that mean practically for you if you're not in school? Does that mean you just have to find enough gigs to pay your rent and that kind of thing? Or? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's it'll be interesting to see where I'm at because, you know, being in school and not being able to, you know, to go out and sit in with every band that asks and, you know, I you know, have to turn opportunities down to be able to study. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see when I'm not in school. Like, I think I'll be able to pay my rent. I don't know. We'll find <laughs> out. I might have to, you know, 
get a part-time job. Who knows? Sure. But um, I also really like teaching, so I might just try to find some kind of after-school teaching job or get like a little private lesson studio happening um, to make ends meet. <laughs> yeah. So as people are listening to this, it is, I think, October. As we're talking, it's September, but it's probably October now when we're actually, uh, people are hearing this. And so that means you're on the road coming up pretty soon. Will you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so from October 18th, I think, to the 29th, I'll be on tour with Trey Anastasio. We're doing a little Northeast Midwest tour. So if you're in that area, you should come, <laughs> come hang out and see a different side of, <laughs> of music. Um, and then also in November on the third, um, Secret Garden will be playing on a cruise that School of Fish, which is um, an organization of fish fans and music lovers, they're um, putting on this great cruise around the Hudson. You know, I don't want to assume. I, I always do this with jazz when people use like just first names, and I say, "Oh, I use the full names." I don't want to assume that anyone knows what we're actually talking about. So there was a band called Fish, P H I S H, well, is a band called Fish, uh, kind of in the jam band scene. So the Especially since you're doing a cruise and a thing called School of Fish, it would be easy for people who have no idea what we're talking about right. to think it was something completely different. So it's Fish not, with a PH. It's not a fan of fans of marine life. <laughs> uh, well, that's fantastic. The uh, the album is is great, and uh, I really enjoyed getting a chance to to hear you live for the CD release party. And I wish you all the best. My guest is Natalie Cressman, uh, the band Secret Garden, and the album Unfolding. And I thank you for being here. Thanks so much.
now we are black and white embracing out in a lunatic new york night it's very unlikely we'll be driven out of town or behind a tree that's unlikely tonight these crowds are happy and loud children are up dancing in the street in the sticky middle of the night That's music from Natalie Cressman and Secret Garden and the album Unfolding. My thanks to Natalie, who was such a great guest. My thanks to you for listening. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quass. Uh, remember, go to jasoncrane.org to keep up with me and my poetry and my activities. Uh, please join the mailing list, which you can do at thejazzsession.com or at jasoncrane.org. If you do that, you'll just still get that email from me, probably still once a week, uh, although it may become slightly less frequent until the new show starts. But in any case, please do that. That'll let you know when things start. And I will, as I said, also put an announcement in the uh, feed for the jazz session. So if you subscribe using an RSS reader or using iTunes or something like that, then you'll get a little short show that announces, uh, probably announces a, a crowdfunding campaign for the new show. Okay, so I guess that's it for this episode, uh, which means this is the last time I will ever say this particular thing because it won't make any sense uh, in the next show, and that is get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz, the final one, as a matter of fact, on the Jazz Session.
listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.